0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Jinto called Life Under Quarantine. My name is Cornelius McGrath and I am your host. In this series, I will be talking to the everyday entrepreneurs, students, athletes, artists, bartenders, chefs, reporters, teachers, and hospital workers about how they are finding meaning, clarity, and opportunity in a time where there seems to be none. My guest today is Jason Teray, a fellow West London boy and entrepreneur based in Tower Hill. I was introduced to Jason through a great mutual friend, John Jackson, who you may remember from episode 24. Jason and I's upbringing was so different and yet our stories mirror each other in so many crazy ways. We both grew up in London, about a decade apart and on opposite sides of the city. And yet so many of the same characters are weaved through our life's narrative. Football, religion, inspiring teachers and immigrant parents, a quality comprehensive education and of course, doing business and life in the United States. The more I learn and listen to Jason's story, the more I am able to make sense of my own. He's a decade my senior and was always a much better footballer, but was subject to a level of abuse on and off the field that I would never expect in my wildest dreams. What's clear, however, is that Jason and I have always been asking a lot of the same questions, albeit from different places. What does it mean to be a London boy? What does it mean to be an outsider? How does being a London boy shape your view of the world? These are the questions that plague every young man growing up in London, from Fulham to Muswell Hill. In this episode, I get to grips with Jason's story. We talk about his growing up with his mum on a council estate, his life as a promising young footballer, including his boot deal with West Ham, and a run-in with Ces Fabregas in the FA Youth Cup. The racist abuse Jason received on and off the field as a young kid, the power of the black nod and the journey he believes we are all on as black unicorns, unlearning who we were told to be so we can finally figure out who we truly are. You won't want to miss this one. Without further ado, here's Jason Touré. Jason Touré, welcome to the Junto, my friend. How are you?
1: I'm doing all right. I'm doing well, Paul How are you doing?
0: I'm good. I'm glad we've just sold the uh, the problem of English football. That's been plaguing me for the last 25 years. And you've come up with an answer in 15 minutes.
1: I, I need someone at the, at the English FA to, to write me my check. Like I literally need to know billing details. Brilliant, boys.
0: That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, look, mate, I'm so excited. You're the, uh, you're really, I think, the first, you know, the first Brit I've had on the show who I think, although went to school in West London for a period of time, has such a different life uh, to the one that I lived. And yet you have such a rich and deep experience in both doing business and becoming a man in London and also America. Two of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about and often feel like I'm on an island, to quote Hugh Grant from About a Boy. And I think, (laughs) thanks to JJ for connecting us, John Jackson, it's been fantastic just for me to listen to some of your takes on what it means to be a London boy, what it means to be a black unicorn, the black nod, being a footballer who didn't make it, Going to Oxford, um, ending up in a school you, you never even dreamed about. Like, there's a lot of kind of parallels to our story. And yeah. uh, I think the kind of the British-American comparison is going <laughs> to be something we focus on a lot today. So I just want to say thanks. And um, I think this is going to be really fun.
1: 100%, man. No, I've, I've been looking forward to this for, for a minute now. And that all means a lot. That really does. Like, I, I'm really grateful to, to Jonathan for, for putting us in touch and... Um, it's been great ever since he, he did. And I really resonate with like, a, like everything that you said. Like, it's so much, it's so natural, like, that it's so much like um, that cuts across like different categories. There's this whole kind of, you know, not being box shaped energy where it's like you're dipping into different things. There's this like Venn diagram of so many different components that make up who we are and our experiences. And mm. um, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this today as well, man. So yeah. yeah.
0: Well, let me just start with this then. Where does your story begin, my friend? And I know you have multiple stories, but where does your story begin?
1: I, like, in as far as, like, any consciousness on on my side, like, my story starts in West London, in Fungam, living in a high-rise council flat, kind of, you know, equivalent, if you like, in architecture to the projects in, in the States, like, really... American listeners who are like, the state sounds lovely. It sounds like something from, from Downton. Uh, <laughs> not, not, not the estate I live on, that. Uh, just a quirk of like, the language we use. And um, being um, in a, you know, I'm the eldest of um, three kids. Um, at that point, it was just me and, and my mum, who was a single parent at the time. Um, and it starts in a, probably not quite big as a kid, but like a tiny little flat in Fulham. Um, with, a, in a gloomy and grey London, relatively isolated, like um, my mum moved to the UK from Nigeria, um, where where she's from originally in maybe the early eighties. And yeah, like in some ways that makes you think the story begins earlier because we're kind of this trap, you know, we're from a, an ethnicity in Nigeria that, after the Biafran War, um, were displaced and moved to a different part of the country, and quite an isolated family with a lot of, you know, post-colonial trauma and or in, you know the trauma of colonialism in Nigeria um, wrapped up in experiences um, and a kind of a, an isolation and a and a nomadic energy of sorts. That means that there's not like the biggest support structure around you, so that takes me back to being in London where. My first memory is me and me and Mum against the, the world in a grey London in a high-rise council flat in 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 Fulham in West London. That's kind of the starting point, and so much from from that kind of from that start for sure has happened.
0: Yeah, that's amazing, mate. I love it. And so you know, you and your Mum. I, I I know you you kind of talked about you know some of the early years when when we first met. Like, what was what was the story that she kind of imbued you with? Um, like were you aware of that context at an early age? How did you mm-hmm. look at the world? And and when you were growing up in West London and growing up in Fulham, like what did you think the world was?
1: Mm-mm. It was a, it was a really weird time. Like I think my mum kind of like furnished with a lot of the tools that you need. Sadly, in the world that we live in, and sadly that it's still the case today. I'm sure, but like I was made aware very early on about how to how to carry myself and how to conduct myself as a black boy in london so there was a lot of emphasis on like you know you gotta work twice as hard to get half of the, the same energy that like most people whose identity means that they don't embody the mainstream and people whose Identity does involve in the mainstream, depending on like their family and so on. Mm. But definitely, like migrant children, you know, a lot of girls, etc. You'd be told that you've got to work twice as hard well to get off the spa. As a black boy growing up in London, there was this whole energy of, you know, don't answer back in the classroom, don't do anything to risk being labelled as aggressive or intimidating. Um, don't fight back if people do fight you, and so on. Like you know, don't fight back. Just find a teacher. Very pacifist kind of like teaching. Mm. Um, so in terms of my like, lessons and how to like um, navigate the world, that was made clear to me pretty early on. But at the same time, I my virtue, I think, of being the eldest and it being me and me and mum like against the world as I, you know, particularly saw it at that age, um, there and not having that big sort of support structure. Um I was reading pretty early, I think like four, about four years old. I was I am reading um I was surrounded by adults because I didn't have siblings. I didn't have cousins. I didn't have, you know, I was surrounded basically by mums, just few friends that mum had who didn't have children, mostly. So you're in, yeah, you're hearing a lot of adult conversation. Um, you're doing that, you know, you're being seen, not heard, but you're dipping in here and there, but you're understanding how adults interact from like a really young age. So I was like that weirdo. I always tell people, I think, in nursery, sort of before I started primary school um, or elementary school, um, playing with like some, I can actually remember it, like playing with like some toys in this kind of like water box thing and playing with some plastic toys and whatnot. And one of the other kids being like, oh, you know, you, you're playing with the water and me turning around like, it's not water, it's water. Like some sort of like <coughs> elocution lesson, uh, like there was that kind of like energy of, that's English, like that's this is how you're supposed to speak. Aged four, when you should be like, don't be an arsehole. Put your pants on over your jeans and pretend you're Superman, <laughs> like a normal four-year-old. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Find a red towel, tuck it into the back of your collar. Um, <laughs> so I was, I say I all say that to kind of make the point. I knew early doors that um I was the one thing I knew more than anything is that I was bright, that I was quite switched on, that I had like an energy that was that belied my age and adults in particular responded to me and I kind of, all right, look, this kid's pretty engaged and switched on, he's not just in a corner, you know, doing his thing, he's kind of like about and and has things to say. So um, yeah, I think it was a combination of like lessons in survival as a black boy in London, but also the key thing that I felt was kind of being trusted, Um, you know, all the little things, helping out with the dishes. maybe being allowed quite early on, like a little sip of Bailey, like the tiniest sip over Christmas. Like, do you know what I mean? I felt quite trusted. Yes. um, Like I was, yeah, I was considered to be fairly, you know, switched on. So those are the things I knew, like, these are the rules, be a pacifist um, and you're a clever boy, but apparently you can't have too much to say for yourself. because maybe teachers and so on and we know this to be true sadly in the education system in london and in the uk mm. but there is this and it's very bright he's got a lot to say for himself it's a bit disruptive there's kind of a yeah. you know black girls get out a lot as well this kind of gonna knock you down a peg or two you're not supposed to be that bright based yeah. on what yeah. i believe from what i'm sort of conditioned to believe so we've got like you know knocked that out of you a little bit it's like mm, not yeah. great but I will say those are the like, early lessons for mum
0: for sure. I love it, mate. And uh, yeah, so the word that a lot of my teachers used in my school reports, and the reason why I know this is because when I graduated <laughs> from, uh, from Notre Dame, my mum printed off every single school report I ever had. And ah. she put it into a, a book and maybe I'll grab it. But it's really interesting, actually, you bring that up, which is, you know, the words that those teachers use and the power, you know, you would yeah. literally live your year, you know, around parents evening. And and yeah. the target grades and all of that. And I remember a comment that used to be, you know, put in there a lot was like maturity beyond his years, which I think is kind of what you're referring to. And yeah, I definitely feel 100%. like we recognize that energy in one another. And I'm interested, where do you think it comes from? It, and and, I, and I'd, I would love to kind of maybe talk some mm-hmm. more about your mum there, because I've also got a really strong mum behind me um, who grew up in West London and, and went to Gumley House yeah. and... Was, oh, was, one, of, was right. one of was one of was one of eight, you know, kind of really dirt poor oh, Irish family, and so yeah,
1: I was gonna say. I think very Irish energy there. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, 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 the company and company Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and, and London at that time was was no no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, right? Like they were the yeah. signs in pubs, and so
1: no Jews as well. Oh, no Jews as well at that point.
0: Yeah. So where do you think that comes from? Because I think it's interesting. Oh,
1: yeah, that's no, it's a good question. That's a good question. I think. Um, I, there's a lot of like kind of having to figure a lot out for yourself in that kind of family setup, like no dad in the house um, and not even, I think one of the things that I find quite important growing up and one of the things i missed out on is um, you you see the kids like maybe at school who are like, that's my, oh, you can't mess with me otherwise I'll get my brother on you or I'll get my cousin on you. I'll get like, everyone's got like an advocate. Everyone's got like a shield that they can or a badge that can flash at you like it's, like it's an FBI badge or something like, oh, you can't mess with me. I'm the sheriff of the town. Um, it's like, oh, don't mess with me. Otherwise my big brother's going to get you. Um, and I never really obviously had that. So I was very aware of all of that. And I think, I think there were lessons that life gave me at the time. There was a lot of moving around. So I'd moved around a lot as a kid. Like even by the time we were living in that council flat in Fulham, I think that was our third place we were living in by then. In, I remember being in, I remember my fourth birthday in that council flat. So we lived in two other places before I was four. Um, And then we went on to move to three other places by the time I was maybe 13. So moved like on average, like through my childhood years, we moved like once every two years basically. Um, And also like talking about the school element, I was excluded from my first school. By the time given all of that energy i've mentioned about being a pacifist um don't get into trouble don't fight back um i found myself excluded from my first primary school probably by the time i was in year one or something and i literally cannot tell you what i did again like i had in, been indoctrinated into don't do anything you're not supposed to do ironically especially back then, like talking about like the Irish element, like this is the early 90s and this is still a time where, yeah, for sure, like Irish people excluded with very similar energy. to you know, black people, Jewish people, etc. Um, and at that point, there was just kind of, in the UK, this kind of, oh, the Irish are, basically, Irish people were tarnished with the terrorism um, brush that, um, unfairly, that Muslim people are um, tarnished with these days. So they were the, Oh, you know, the IRA and Sinn Féin and nail bombings and all the rest of it. Like there was this real kind of negative energy towards Irish people at the time in, in the UK. So I remember like my biggest protector at primary school was um, this boy, Anthony, he was like a year or two older than me. I think his mom and my mom used to share like picking us all up and dropping us off at my first primary school. And Anthony always had my back. Like, Anthony was like protector in chief. If anyone came, you know, looking for any trouble with me, if anyone said things that he shouldn't have said, and he was in there like a rocket, like he just kind of had that energy. Um, so I think there are a lot of lessons around, okay, you don't know why you've been excluded from this school, but that's happened. And I went a different school and then mum appeals that exclusion and that gets turned around. I remember being told by the headmaster of the school I was excluded from that I would end up in prison. Um, there was a big racialized component to it. Like, black boy is going to end up in prison. And I can't even tell you what I did. that. At that age, like, did try and burn down the school? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, the kind of thing you need to do to be worthy of like that kind of language and being excluded in year one has to be, oh yeah, I've got some anthrax and I've put it into envelopes and sent it to all the teachers. Like, it has to be some catastrophic stuff. I can't even tell you like the fights I got into or anything like that. That just wasn't the energy I had in primary school. So that's something I should pick up with mum and actually look at what were their grounds like. What did I even supposedly do? Um, But I think all of that, you know, moving to another primary school and then eventually deciding not to go back to that one and going to a really great primary school in Chelsea, um, that Catholic primary school, like we're Catholic as well, which, so that's part of why I'm so used to having many, many Irish people around me uh, who are Catholic, um, and like especially in primary school and so on. And um, yeah, like that's where I think a lot of that came from, like the moving around um, and also, you know, traumatic things that happened when I was quite young, unfortunately. Like um my brother and sister's uh, father, um, kind of I guess my stepdad, you know, at that point, kinda of came on the scene and he was a an abusive man and a violent guy, um, and a drunk. And there were needs for me at a very young age to have to, you know, know to call the police and call the ambulance when, you know, violence happened in the in the household. Um so there's that kind of harsh lessons being taught right um i like there were just things that meant that you have to grow up quite quickly um when i was about six or seven years old um i was left with like a neighbor um over a weekend with them Mm -hmm. and their um child who was staying with them as well that person was like separated from their child's parent Mm -hmm. um so they had their child for the weekend and i stayed with them too and that person um sexually abused the two of us um when we were maybe yeah, six or seven years old. So experiencing that and then being in a position where you eventually reveal that to mum, kind of like anecdotally, because something comes up that kind of prompts that thinking at such a young age. You're like, oh yeah, this happened and you know, your mum kind of being like, What? Like, what's going on here? Sorry. And that painting a move and, you know, the fact that there was that violence from, you know, my stepdad at the time and all these different things. There were just so many things that from a very young age basically Make you hyper vigilant and make you have to grow up. And I think that's a big part of even just my outlook on the world and why I question things like, you you know, you're, when you're a child, you're kind of taught, you know, the world operates a certain way and, you know, it's all quite natural and people are here to protect you. And when those kinds of curveballs are thrown at your family situation, those kinds of variables, you learn quickly. It's like, oh no, that's not necessarily sadly and you've got to kind of make things work for you. So I think all of that as a combination of things um, and just me being like so close to mum, like it's, it's kind of a combination of all that shitty stuff, mm. but also, um, oh, mum's doing the dishes. I want to do the dishes. Oh, mum's cooking. I want to help with cooking. Like basically being this puppy chasing mother hen around when it was just me and her very early on kind of had me instead of, oh, I'm going to play, you know, I um, want to sit and you know, I watch cartoons, I watch the X Men, I watch Power Rangers, I watch all that kind of stuff. But instead of I'm just gonna go around to my friend's house and just play video games and that's it. There was also most of my time I'm here with just you. So I'm kind of interested in the stuff that you're doing. So you're doing some fairly grown up stuff as well. And I think all of that as a combination yeah. kind of triggers a kind of maturity beyond your you you gotta grow up quickly, right? So right. yeah.
0: Right. And so I love that. It's, it's almost like when things don't work <clears throat> and you see them not work in front of your eyes, the kind of fairy tale is busted. And then you start Offset. asking questions. And again, exactly. think these are some things you asked for, some others you didn't. But, you know, if you subscribe to kind of the, the tabula rasa belief, right, that all knowledge comes from experience and perception, I can yeah. kind of understand now why that maturity comes so early.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: Yeah. I love it. So tell me this, mate. So, like, you're a very good footballer. Um, and I, and <laughs> I, know we're, I know we're, go- we're not going to dissect Arsenal and Man United seasons. We'll save that <laughs> for another show. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: when Mason yeah a better season than this one. Or yes, that you exactly. I... <laughs> but,
0: but, but obviously, playing football, you know, in London is, it, you know, is really like maybe playing God's game a little bit. And you happen to be <laughs> very good at it, much better than me, and I was very good at it. So, you know, hats <laughs> off to you there. So, like, tell me the first day you realised you were excellent at football. when and how did that journey kind of help uh, detract from, you know, the home situation, but also your relationship with education? Because oftentimes, yeah, the boys that are good at football, um, and girls too, but you know, in our context, the boys, sometimes because you were good on the field, there were things you got away with, you know?
1: 100%. It's really, it's really interesting. I think the starting point for me, my, you mentioned it earlier. My interest in football was definitely sparked by um, the European Championships in 1996. So Euro '96, England hosted Euro '96. I'm seven years old, and the country is just locked into this like absolute fascination with you know football, the England team, famous songs, you know um, the Deal and Skinner. Um, it's Car, it's car you know. It's coming! I'm, it's coming! Football's coming! Like, all of that kind of stuff. It was just mental, and the world's so small to you at that age. But it felt like everyone in the country was like locked into this, into this experience. And England played Scotland in the group stage. It's in um, the Battle of Britain, as it was coined, obviously. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Paul Gascoigne Gaza scores the most, just like perfect goal. Um, kind of flicking the ball over, I think, Colin Hendry, one of Scotland's, to bend those heads twice, like, over his head on his right foot, over it again on his left foot. You know, he's got him running back and forth, looking in the sky, looking for the ball, and then just volleys it, I think, into the bottom right corner. And, like, iconic celebration of him on the floor, dentist chair, as they call it, like, his teammates pouring water out the Lucas A bottles and whatnot um, because of a whole kind of um, furore around um, the, the England team pre the tournament, going out and getting pissed and drunk in on their like uh, pre-tournament um, sort of warm-up um, tour and so on. And all this stuff coming out in the press and all, you know they're not taking it seriously enough and all the rest and it was kind of a, a retort to that. Uh, that's the moment where I was just like, this is the best thing ever. I need to be doing this with my life. Like, why am I not playing this game? And I just, you know, being a London boy, you know, an inner London boy, you know, you are playing it was playground football, right? You're Playing the playground, and all of a sudden, like you're trying things out, you're you're honing some ability, and it sounds harsh, but there's an element of I can really do some stuff that can embarrass some other people. Like I can put the ball through your legs and like put you on your arse. Like I can, you know, you start to again. There's probably a if you're good at football, you tend to be fairly there's some sort of, there's some sense of belonging and popularity that come with that. But just this is fun. Like I'm enjoying just being able to like do stuff that people can't contain and that other people can't do. Um, I think that early on at that stage, I kind of realized how oh, that was pretty good. Um, you know, playing for the school team, you know, getting recommended to uh, a team called Queen's Park Rangers or QPR um, in West London, who um, I was recommended to have a look at me and I had some um, trials there before I finished primary school. Um, then going to secondary school and Um, playing for the small team, playing for the local county, Middlesex County, um, playing, getting scouted by Brentford, um, another um, West London Middlesex kind of football club, and actually spending a bit of time playing with them in their centre of excellence. Like at that point, you're like, okay, cool, I'm one of the, you know, the good footballers amongst the group of people in my school who are playing for the county, are playing for the the local professional team. Um, And I do think with that in mind, because... As I, I would say like I'm, I'm, to use Rick and Morty, the TV show as an example, I'm Morty by nature, Rick by nature. Mm. So I'm like pacifist, little sweet boy, just wants to keep his head down and have an easy life, i.e. Morty by nature. That's my instinct. That's who I am. All of these lessons that we've kind of half touched on already taught me to become a little bit Rick a little bit sociopath, a little bit survivor, a little bit killer instinct. Like, oh, mum told me to be a pacifist who just kind of keeps his head down. But I basically getting into fights and you know, not doing anything and sort of having a bit of a hard time with it and I haven't got anyone to back kind of fight my corner. They get second in school and you kind of hyper-masculine, you know, survivor in a London black boy energy comes out. you are like, listen, I'm chill when you come to my trouble. You'll find it tenfold. If you come, like, if you think you're mad, I can move madder. Like, whatever you're bringing, you're going to get it. Yeah. And that becomes like this, thing, this kind of thing, right? So, I, in some ways, was, you know, I was someone who, if you came for my trouble at school, you definitely found it. I was never a troublemaker. But if you, obviously, in year seven or, you know, seventh grade, it's like, your mum, your mum is a strong enough insult for us to have a fight. No. It's not like, there's no end to the sentence. It's just your mum, bro. My mum, like now you're like, my mum, what? What about my mum? Just your mum in it. "Um, Okay, that's not a complete sentence. I don't really know what you're trying to say. (laughs) When it's about that, it's like, you're just saying my mum. And that's my mum, bro. If you can't say anything about my mum, say any of the big fight that we're gonna have. Um, And of course, it it wasn't as simple as that when you're in year 11, you're six feet. You know, calmed down a little bit from that. But yeah, you know, all boys, secondary school, a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, kind of performance, masculinity. Um, Yeah. Like if someone i would never be a trouble starter, but for sure, like I was someone who got into a lot of scraps and had a lot of anger. Um, Largely, I think it's a home situation, stepdad in and out of the household, all of the stuff that came with that. Um, So it's interesting. I think on one hand, football was football and my intelligence meant that I didn't have the trajectory that i probably would have had otherwise you know in the uk we have this um people uh pupil referral unit i think they called it where basically we used to call it like um well, guantanamo bay basically they'd exclude like some of the kids in the school who were like angry and violent. oh
0: yeah this long. is unit but, you know people are like yeah, oh you're going unit. yeah the
1: unit yeah exactly yeah so they are put you in a raft in the unit uh, you you start half an hour and start school half an hour later and finish half an hour earlier so you don't interact with like the normal kids was kind of how we used to talk about it back then that basically to protect us, but um, for sure, like I, the football coach um, knew I was talented and liked me. He saw me in that space where it's like carefree playing football. That's my escape and doing really well. So that definitely shielded me from a lot of stuff. And that teacher eventually became my head of year in year eleven, which was huge for me. Um, so I think, that in year eleven, by being my head of year, he realised I was bright. And I remember me getting into a fight and he'd put me in his, um, me being sent to his office. And he looked through my reports, he had this like really funny voice like it's like, I think he's an East London boy, basically he talks a little bit like this, you right, Chase, how you doing? And um, <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, I, I need to reconnect to them. His name's Mr. Buckley, and he's been huge for like, where my life, how my life has turned out. Basically I remember him like, Chase, you can't keep getting into fights. Like, you know, here you are again. Another fight? What's going on there? So, I don't know, man. I just, I just get so angry. Mm. <laughs> like he's basically, Incredible Hulk, right? And then uh, he goes looking for my reports. He's like, "Jase, all I'm seeing here are like eight stars and eight. You're pretty bright, yeah." I'm like, "Yeah, duh." Like, is that mm. not known? Like, we're in a comprehensive state school, and I'm an A and A star student, like. I can basically burn the school down and like I'm not going anywhere. Like I'm I'm getting you the grades that make you like appealing to the next in, inflating burn of, you know, year seven. And, and you knew
0: that. You like, knew yeah, that like, though. You understood your position yeah. in that way. You understood.
1: I think, I think so. I think so. Because like, realistically, the other boys who got into the kind of like, you know, back and forth that I did all ended up in, in the unit. So I, I was like, I'm good at football. And I'm likable when people see that through football and I'm bright and I'm in a comprehensive school. I'm a big fish in a small pond. So and I didn't use that to like, so I could do what I want. I'm just going to go and like be an artist. But I definitely like had a, by year 11, I definitely had a, well, like, why are we doing this dance again? Like just tell people to leave me alone and there won't be any scuffles. Um, but anyway, I think like definitely football was part of the reason why I avoided a lot of shit and it gave me a lot of privilege. I also think it was a huge escape for me growing up. I remember living in a different council flat in Hannah Smith um, by the time I was in secondary school, probably until I was about 12 or 13. And the number of times as they kind of built these in the midst of like the estate, um, these kind of football cages with basketball hoops and all that kind of like civic housing stuff, right? Like, you know, slides for the younger kids and sort of tar, the tar surfaced, tarmacky surfaced, caged football area um, with the goalposts painted on a brick wall kind of thing. Excuse me. Um, yeah, like football is my escape. I I can visualize myself kicking ball against the wall on my own, aged 9, 10, 11, just to be out of the house, just to be out of like this space where you can't help as a kid but think that you're blamed for why you're... The house is in the kind of turmoil it's in so often and you become that parentified child by that point i have two siblings a lot younger than me so you're helping out with a lot of stuff right like you're kind of doing stuff that ideally at that age you wouldn't have to do but i'm not the only um sort of kid at that age you had to so my escape often was just to like hone my skills just to like be on my own it's quite sad when i think about it actually just this little boy on his own kicking ball against the wall at at night like with not a lot of like lights from like lampposts and whatnot um kind of (laughs) late into the evening but for sure i think it was a huge escape for me even from that to playing like playing on sundays training it was a great outlet for my aggressiveness um it's all for my aggression like i could be i could channel my This kind of rage that wasn't being addressed, you know, people are dealing with other things. Um, You know, my mom surviving a a violent man, um, alongside trying to raise kids and all the rest of them, hold down a job, and you know, the whole thing. So, like, very much excused for not honing in on. I am here to fully nurture you in ways beyond survival. It's like "Ah, you're you're juggling some things. You got some stuff going on. Like, oh, it's cool, but uh, it's very understandable. But you know, kind of having to go out to find that solace and to find those channels for for your aggression. So yeah, for sure, it was a really great escape in that sense. It definitely helped me out in school. And uh, to tie up the Mr. Buckley situation. It definitely you know wrapped up quite nicely where he became an advocate for me massively. One of the few teachers who didn't have conflicted views. I me mean, like he's bright but or, oh, no, he's charming but it's kind of like no, he's great. He's just clinical got stuff going on at home and he's angry and no one's dealing with it, no one's talking to him. And if you had he's learn, he's not protected, like in the way that since he's been young, he's not been, not to blame anybody, but fundamentally he's not been protected in the way that he should be. He shouldn't have to call the police and ambulance to protect his mum from this violent man. Like his mum's supposed to protect him, he's not supposed to protect six Six. Like, what's going on? Um, and of course, that's just life and you do what you need to do. But there's that lack of protection. And it's a lack of advocacy. So you learn to project kind of like prison yard energy, right? It's like this, anyone even looks at me, I'm just going to go nuts. So they don't not to do anything kind of thing. Um, and that becomes quite effective. So, and it's also a handy outlet for your anger. So it becomes quite seductive as well. But Mr. Buckley really understood like the number of things, particularly in 11, the things that came to a head, like just stuff you look back at school, and you're like, rah, like that is a bit wild that you. Like, like that in that situation, Jason, or whatever it is. But Mr. Buckley always had my bag. And then when my mum found out about um, the school I went to to do my A-levels, this um, boarding school in Sussex, um, that I essentially had my fees like paid for like um, by the school. Um, Mr. Buckley is the teacher who, between that understanding of, I like Jason, he's good at sports, and that's why I get to see the very, very best of this like, charming, clever, you know, quick-witted kid. But also, we've got like a really smart kid on our pants, who's also like angry and all the rest of it, but like, what's the, how do we create like the, the circumstances for him to succeed? And um yeah, he was key to uh, kind of recommendations to go to the, to, to the school that I went to for my A-levels and so on. And yeah, like, I, I wonder if that would have happened without that advocacy from him, without football, without him understanding me as a personality, without him becoming my head of year and therefore having like a real stake in Okay, cool. Your character. I'm a school. I need to make a recommendation. I'm your head of year, um, and him by being head of year, realizing, oh, you're also really smart. Like, Jesus, squad's like we need to protect you at all costs. Like, there's stuff going on at home. You're a clever kid. You're charming. You're talented at football. Let's, we, we will be failing you, <laughs> despite you know the mistakes you you've make. Like, it be we will be failing you to not like set you up to succeed. So, yeah, football. I've never really thought about that until you asked that question, but. It's, Weaves quite nicely into the solace I had in the years growing up, but also why I had the launch pads to the school that I went to, fly levels, which was huge for for my future for sure. Yeah, I definitely want
0: to talk about CH, but I guess to to wrap a bow on, on on football, I want to ask two questions. So, so how was your personality on the pitch different from off? I've got some interesting takes on this, and, and then, then you know the fact that you had a buddy boot deal, mate, with Adidas at West Ham. So. <laughs> And you, you know you yeah, saw yeah. seth fabregas you know hit a banger into the top oh. corner when you're at you know when you're at uh, crawley so tell me yeah, about that because yeah. that's that's really really impressive stuff
1: It mad. like i so yeah i wasn't at brentford for very long um, a bunch of us left basically um middlesex you know brentford felton those kind of areas in the early noughties kind of national front heartland basically like very kind of old school white nationalist energy, you know, kind of working class nationalist white energy in that area. So there was a lot of, it was like me and three other boys um, from my school, who were at Brentford. One was of Serbian heritage. He was born in the UK, but like his parents are from Serbia. um, And the rest of us were mixed race or black. And the the kid who was Serbian, I don't know much to say, Then basically he, the coach or the uh, director in the center of excellence, basically took him to the side and was kind of like, you spend spending a lot of time with the with the black boys, you know, like, and, you know, like kind of need to, you know, want we'll to integrate you into the team and you are a white boy, you know, we we'll want to spend, you know you like, spend more time with all the white boys in the team. And this kid was literally like, but I go to school with these boys so that I don't go to school with any of the other kids who are in the team, like I go to school with these three or four boys um, and I don't care. That they're black or brown, that's not meaningful to me. But also, it's the early noughties and I'm Serbian. And those boys basically call me a Bosnian um, yeah. you know, so they they pro slurs me, they're like, Oh, you're a um, refugee from Bosnia and you're this and you're that and so on and so forth. Like they're not friends, they're not brethren, like I'm not cool with them anyway. Yeah. Um, so what? But then we came to learn about that. So most of us ended up leaving, including that boy. Like it's just you know, our parents call wind of it. It's like, no, nah, this is in the environment we want our kids to be in. Um, so I went back to playing Sunday League, still played for County, eventually got scouted by West Ham, which at a time where, you know, West Ham was like the academy of football in the early noughties. This is where basically the England team of that time came from. Frank Lampard's and Jermaine Defoe's and Rio Ferdinand. Yep. And yeah. Like Joe Carl's,
0: all those men, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, ridiculous. And equally like the, Eastern, the East side equivalent of Middlesex to an extent, there's some white nationalist energy and... We're getting to that kind of time. So interesting in that sense. But, um, you know, unreal experience. And um, yeah, basically, I was there for just over a year. And then when I finished my GCSE, I was offered a scholarship, but it was also a choice between going to boarding school, or just going to Christ Hospital, the CH, or staying in London, going to a college and doing my scholarship as an apprentice, you know, an apprentice, especially at West Ham. And I mentioned my mum's. Um, my mom's Nigerian, so Eddie again, not unique. And as an Irish kid, I think there's probably a similar energy. It's like no, 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 no. no. you are going to go to school, and you can like have a profession, you can be a doctor or a lawyer, lawyer or an engineer or an accountant. This football and malarkey, no, no, no. Like you break your leg in your thumb. You're A clever boy, the vehicle to escape any kind of poverty is a profession based on you know a strong academic career, and that's what we're going to do. It's a private boarding total, pay off your fees. You're going there. And it even made sense to me. I kind of been in front and be like, oh, no, mum, but I want to you know, stay at West Ham. Like, no, it kind of makes sense to you guys. Um, so I ended up uh, playing for a then semi pro football club called Town, who we were in the same county as the boarding school. They are over in Sussex. little <laughs> club, nice little stadium, uh, many levels below where I think West Ham had just been relegated to the championship, so just below the Premier League, over that year or the, year, the next year probably were in like the Doctor Martin's Premier League at that point. I don't think that exists anymore, Isthmian or something. Probably like four divisions below where West Ham were. Um so playing for the youth team and the reserves and then eventually playing for the first team. But in the youth team we got to the third round of the FA Youth Cup and the team we were drawn against in the third round was Arsenal Youth. I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan. And this is late two thousand and three, I think. Um Late 2003, early 2004, and a prodigy who only won and won the World Cup and the Euros and the Premier League and La Liga, played for Barcelona, played for Chelsea, played for Arsenal. A little known footballer named Francesc or Cesc Fabregas Soler or Ces Fabregas. Um, who I knew about at the time because you're at that age where you play football manager on like the PC and whatnot, or championship manager so you know about like at that point the Robinho's and the prodigy players who are apparently going to be amazing they're like 16 but they're going to be the next big thing you know Diego Robinho all of these guys and I knew about Seth Fabregas and yeah so playing against Arsenal youth you absolutely dismantled us they beat us like 9-1 or something just different level to us um, a lot of our Lads like were basically Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, people who'd spun out of the academy at Brighton, which again is at that point two or three leagues below West, um, below Arsenal and West Ham. Um, so not at an academy of the same stature of, of a, a club of the same stature as Arsenal. Like, we can't compete, you know. There's so many other players on the pitch, who, like when Moe at the time, Quincy or with played in that game. Um, an Irish lad called. Oh, he made a good career You're getting his name now. He's got a hat trick against us. Um uh, I can't remember the name. But um, yeah, a lot of good players and I think Cesar Abraga scored an absolute wildy, Like I can't even call it a lob. like just from forty five yards, just arrowed it top in to top right corner. And just like what have you come kind of as like, what have you done? <laughs> like how did you even do that? <laughs> yeah. Like how how is that possible? Yeah. Um absolutely unbelievable. But really great to to have that experience and, uh, you know, as an, I think, you know, Seth Abragas became Arsenal captain. I've gone to Arsenal matches. So I've seen Seth do some of the best moments I've had watching football matches have been moments that Seth Abragas has been responsible for. So to play on the same pitch at any point as someone of that kind of like level, having not continued to pursue a career in football, it's like, whoa, like that was, that was pretty cool. But, um, yeah, yeah so crazy journey. And then when I went to university, you know, you keep playing, Um, semi-pro you know like a couple of you know Oxford City and a few clubs here and there um but and obviously for the university team but you start to wind down there's probably an element at which or a point at which you begin to feel a bit like bit chewed up and spat out a bit oh should I have carried on at West Ham and I have friends who made it um who stuck with football and have built really great careers um yeah like there was kind of that all I don't know like maybe you know, should I? maybe stuck with that a little bit longer. But no, like, really fun experiences and great memories. Um, Yeah, we're very lucky to have, for sure. Yeah.
0: I think it's amazing how, I think it's amazing how when you look back on the game and, or at least when you go to university, at least the way I felt is it was like, oh, I feel like because I'm not at the top level anymore that actually a lot of my, my interest and ego around the game is gone. And I think, Sure. That really affects your performance, and at least in in England, you know. All right, so you don't make it at West Ham. What are your options? I mean, yeah, university football isn't isn't of nearly as high caliber as it should be compared to the US, sure. number one, and then number two. It's like, yeah. yeah, I don't want to be, you know, taking a car journey four hours, you know, up north to get <laughs> my legs broken yeah. by some thirty-two-year-old, you know, that used to be good.
1: Hundred percent. It was such an experience, like. I I really I think in terms of like my personality I think I was basically you know how if you think of a footballer there's the Thierry Henry aesthetic of your um, socks pulled up over your knees which is basically for me I see that I think all right you fancy yourself you've got a bit of ability and you I see as a challenge I feel like the brand of a footballer who wears their socks so high that they pull up over their knees is a Almost ballerina esque, like you won't even touch me. You won't even see me. I dare you to get myself dirty. I actually dare you to get so close to me as a defender, as an opposition player, to even affect this aesthetic and not to embarrass you. And then the other extreme on the other side is that proper Roy of the Rovers, socks, kind of Jack Greenish, socks barely pulled over your shin pads, you know, kind of street footballer energy that is like, I've got ability, but I can rough and tumble as well. I was probably a mixture of the two. I probably started off as like socks over the knees. All right, cool. Let's let's have some fun. And once antagonized, basically adopted that like sock. Like, all right, cool. Like literally all of the afters, all of the chat, all of the, mate, you whacked me there. Like, what are you doing? Like when someone's like kicked you and they kind of ignore you, I'd be like, yeah, cool. Okay, watch. Watch, watch what happens in the next fifty-fifty. Watch what happens. like, it's going to be clean. I'm going to get the ball or you will remember me. Like when you're in for the next three days, you'll remember mm. that you came up against me. Like mm. that kind of, you can mix it up, street ball, street footballer energy of, I'm used to playing football against boys bigger than me who would like respect you if you did stuff to them, but could beat the shit out of you. And it's kind of like, nah, no, I know, don't let the ability fool you. Like I have that agginess, that aggression as well. Um, so that definitely was like a big factor. And then I think it was funny. Like I remember at West Ham, a lot of the kids got boot deals with, um, with um, companies and I got one with Adidas and it's like Pete David Beckham era, right? Like Beckham is Pomp, uh, United, um, England captain, all the rest of it. So fully, you know, you get the person like right? So like number seven on the side, and he said, I, I had Adidas predators. Um, I was like, uh, I was a predator guy. So you had like the over the the yeah. classic. And it tongue, would go under the boot. Kind of. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, I had the gunmetal gray ones and I had the red ones two i think i maybe have the champagne colored ones as well predator oh they were manias.
0: sick. yeah they were sick i,
1: I can't be, yeah i can't believe i don't have access to them anymore like they're i would wear them today i'm sure they're like technically not up to scratch but like i love those boots and um yeah england flag <laughs> Toure on the on the tongue um, number seven on that as well like all of that stuff and i do remember part of what you were saying there around like falling out of love with it a little, a little bit i think being at crawley and it's like, there's a lot going on with this, right? But I remember being on the wing, playing in the reserves, you know, um, and you're playing a lot of football for the school team, you know, at Christ hospital at that point, you're playing for the reserves at Crawley, occasionally making appearances in the first team at that point, like early on. And, you know, Thursday night or Tuesday night in the reserves, playing against a bunch of, like, really, like you say, like painters and decorators, basically, like who are these van men, who are these white band men that I'm now playing against who... You know, it's so from the lofty heights of like West Ham and being surrounded by the future, you know, the future talent of uh, of England in some ways that that's what you're being told. Mm. I and mean, before you know it, it's like the coach of the opposition team on the wing that you're on shouting to his team like, Oi, Smithy, get the darkie. Get the darkie. Before he gets away from you, before he gets sprinting, get the darkie. Take him out. And you'll be like, Who's the, the darkie? You're talking about me, bro. And get whacked by like, some so neighbor, like you say yes. to his studies it's his is now like, you're not, it's done for you. Like, I don't know why you're still doing this. I guess you need to pop up the mortgage payments or whatever. But like, yeah. why are you here? And it's disheartening. We like, number one, as much as West Ham and Brentford like are what they are, you weren't overtly moving with that kind of energy. Like you would not comfortably say that kind of foolishness out loud, but just like, what am I doing here? Like what am I doing getting whacked yeah. by Gavin over here, yeah. <laughs> who's, you know, coach or gaffer is like, you know, saying all this stuff out loud. Your yeah. coach is like, Jace, just focus on the game. Don't worry about that. Focus on the game. You're like, you're lucky I don't focus on flying, kicking their coach in the head. Like, I don't mm-hmm. really know. Like, you should be doing something like this. It's not okay for me to be talking like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to go back to school and be like, you know what? Maybe I'll just focus on my studies and try and, get to, you know, try and do this whole academic thing. Because like, it's not hopping like it used to. This is not what I expected age 17 or 18. And my peers are, you know, some of them are playing for the first team in West Ham now in the championship and getting opportunities. because They got relegated and had a fire sale with a lot of their experienced players. So they're getting a chance. And you're like, yeah, I'm knocking about getting whacked by, you know, Smithy and the Resis. Fun. <laughs> so, yeah, it's easy to lose that heart and that enthusiasm for sure i mean that whole time was a hard time for me anyway like my first year at christ hospital was yeah yeah you know, like i was yeah yeah, yeah i was pretty i was pretty it was you know i fundamentally really enjoyed my time at ch by the time i left but i was pretty depressed in my first my first year that i now understand having you know you know now that i have a therapist and they were able to actually map out like what you experienced been like when you felt a certain way and i think being a boarding school when my identity was so tied up in being like my family's protector mm. at that point. It's kind of like, and also the friends that you have cultivated at the school that you've been at for those years um, at Gunnersbury, kind of that feeling that like it's not going to be the same, be the same again. Right? Like it all worked at Gunnersbury and now you look back at it's imperfect. You're not going to be friends with everyone that you're friends with when you're 16 and so on and so forth, but things were great back then. It all makes sense. As someone who didn't have that kind of extended family and that support, I cultivated something kinda of good for myself. Um, around some good people. And that plus that feeling of I've never lived away from home and home's were a place where I've had to plug in and protect and you know, muck in and support and now I'm just gonna go off. go off sworn off to boarding school. What if what if, you know, at that point stepdad's out of the picture completely be like, what'd be tries to come round what if you know like he tries to get into the house or when i'm in school so you have this kind of like weird guilt and this feeling of you you're abandoning which is a ridiculous thing to think it should be given the experience that i've had like i still like i'm abandoning others but it's like really you're the person who's not been protected and not has been abandoned in some ways and i think all of that just led to this whole and also the football component um, i had a girlfriend at the time who back in London, who obviously didn't go to the boarding school. So just like, oh, what, am I, what am I doing? What am I doing here kind of thing? Um, so it was a tricky start. And I think that being down definitely impacted football um, and kind of falling out of love with it. But um, like my a former Arsenal footballer was basically my tutor and the mm-hmm. coach in the school football team. Um, Steve Gatting, his brother was Mike Gatting. He was like England cricket captain. Wow. Um, and Gats was, Steve Gatsing was like football coach. He was my tutor, until the school was like, you need an academic tutor, not an ex footballer Like, you could still, you ex-West Ham, fine. Yeah, you and Gatting are going to have some chemistry, but you should have an academic tutor from this academic institution that we're in. Um, but yeah, just, I think that was such a, thing started off really well, extra training with, um, with Gats, playing for the school team, Playing for Crawley. And then it was just like, it fell off a cliff where I was like, I'm just not happy. Um, so real up and down experience. Like my mom found out about the school through a friend who lived in the high rise in Fulham um, or in the estate next to it actually, yeah. whose son was a above me, went to London Oratory. Um, and um, they found out about CH and had applied for him to go there and he got a place. Um, she was Nigerian as well. I mean, off, Hi, you can send your kids to this private boarding school and the school basically pays the fees. Uh, sign me up. Like once one West African woman has heard about that, they have all heard that. It gets uttered in one church. <laughs> we are all going to descend upon that school. Like what? Education is mad important to us. This is the levels and it's cheap or free. Let's go. Let's make yeah. it happen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like very lucky to even that my mum learned about it. And maybe applications, and you know, Mr. Buckley supported that, um, even as other teachers kind of openly tried to use it as a weapon against me. I remember my form tutor kind of being like, oh, I've got trouble for something. She's Northern Irish. Like, it, if I'm going to tell Christchurch, if you don't behave yourself, I'm going to tell Christchurch about about your behavior. It's like, you tell Christchurch what you want, because I'm going to Christchurch. So <laughs> I don't know what you're on about. <laughs> you can write to Christchurch Canterbury. Which I wouldn't know who I am or why I'm in touch. Um, so you can tell the kind of like energy I had age sixteen like can be a bit bit of a yeah, there's that kind of like talking back and whatnot could be there for sure. But um yeah, it's kind of weaponising thing, like, oh you've got this great opportunity coming up you think, but well, we can take it away. It's like mate, they've already made the offer, so that's just gonna great. But um, What do you yeah, think like-
0: changed? What do you think changed, mate? You know, you go from Gunnersbury, you go from you know, you're a con- comprehensive, you know, schoolboy. You've flirted in and out with some good teachers over your life, and then, you know, you arrive at Christ Hospital, and and what 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 switches? What's the difference?
1: Fundamentally, like looking back on it now, I think I made what at the time were well, like the friends that I really needed to have the sense of belonging, as I understood it at the time. Like I, my big disconnect with CH was basically having got places at other private schools, even before I went to Glanisbury, I've got a place for them back to my upper, yep. but again, yeah, scholarship. So it's like, I well, just can't afford to go. So it, thanks for it. making me an offer, but I can't afford it. <laughs> so I want to go to Break. I'm glad you're not uh, a like, Latin or boy, though. I uh, saying, like, yeah, that's not the one. That's, can you imagine me? I mean, yeah. I could, I, I'm I could like, imagine yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> I could imagine imagine it. how different I'd be. I, yeah. like, I, I like when me, I've turned out to be, I like the juxtaposition of like, because Gunnersbury comprehensive state school, but it used to be a grammar school and it's still, and it's Catholic, you know, school, which whatever you, you know, there is this kind of weird Catholic schools are good schools, energy. Maybe that's just a very Irish and like my mom's like Kwale, like Igbo Kwale Nigerian Catholic energy. It's like, well, Catholic schools, they have disciplines and they have discipline, they have, you know, uh, you know, nuns and blah, blah, blah. They have all these things that mean that you're going to focus. You're know? okay. I don't know if they are actually better, but I've definitely been indoctrinated to believe that they are very good. Um, as I'm sure maybe you might have been as well. I don't know why, but apparently so. And um, (laughs) I think that to start with, it was, yeah, like, sorry, I made that point to highlight that, yeah, I went to a comp, but I didn't go to the worst comp in the world. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, like I grew up, I'm very aware of like, there's a privilege even within being disenfranchised or within being, but there's so many parts of my story and my experience. That put me in the category of being um, disadvantaged massively. Like, basically, all the telltale signs were ending up in prison, whether they should have happened or not, happened. Excluded from school, single parent household, poverty, like I was on free school meals at a certain point. But I also never went to bed hungry. Like, we were never we were poor. We won PO, as Akala said. Like, we could afford the OR. Like, I never went to bed with my stomach grumbling, the lights stayed on. But I know my mum. Was probably very, I'm probably was very stressed and very on the call. Like we're into the overdraft, then I get paid, then all the rent and the stuff comes out. We're back in the overdraft to the petrol in debt kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is stressful as hell with like three kids and you know some violent lunatic popping in and out of your life. So that's not to say it's easy, but there are levels. Like if you're eating mouldy bread, your poverty is different to what I grew up in for sure. But it doesn't mean that I wasn't in poverty. It's just there are levels within the levels, and I think that so Gunnersbury was a decent school um, at the time. Like I'm not even sure how good it is now. So you get to Ch, and I just didn't think it was for me. I didn't understand this whole ethos, which was originally was a school for orphaned children in the city of London. Um, When this, you know, when. Britain converted to Church of England and Anglicanism, I guess, and Catholicism. Um, all the monasteries dissolved, and all of the you know, sort of children, orphan children in the monasteries were from the streets of London. So it's a huge epidemic of, you know, this is like on the King Edward VI, right? It's like you know, mid 16th century or something. Um, but yeah, like London's full of all these orphan children. So the um, school was founded by King Edward VI as a hospital to care for and educate those kids. So, it's all, ethos has always been helping people who have been orphaned, and it's like a social mobility vehicle. So, when I went to the school, the ethos was if you would benefit from the education, but not ordinarily be able to afford it, you would get priority. And when I went, and the school would basically cover your fees. So, when I went, something like 65% of the kids didn't pay any fees at all. Wow. Um, so, it was this social mobility experiment where a bunch of like poor kids from London, a lot of them black and brown, got to have this, you know, who were bright, got to fulfill their potential academically. Mm. But the thing that was most interesting for me, I think there was that confusion. I didn't understand the ethos of the school. So I had that kind of almost imposter syndrome of, but why would this be for me? Like I'm the big fish in the small pond, why would Mm. this be, it's not for me, it's for other people. Um, Because it's a private school, it's a private boarding school. And then I understood how unique this particular boarding school was. But then I think the main thing, like beyond like friendships and which I probably resisted at first when I was like super, which I definitely resisted at first when I was depressed and worrying about my friends from home and worrying about, you know, my girlfriend and family and so on. Um, I think the key thing, and you realize this quite quickly when you go back to London on an eve weekend or, um, you know, Easter holidays and whatnot, is the kind of permanent state of fight or flight, or in my case, fight. I don't, My fight or flight response is fights, like 99.9% <laughs> of the time. I don't know why, um, it's probably the Rick in me. But um, just how much you're on, like when you don't know any different, you don't know any different. So like you're living your life in London and everything's fine. You go to this castle, you know, the biggest school in Britain, um, you know, the biggest school campus, one of the richest schools in the richest school in the country that that says. Not so cash rich, obviously, you're paying for all these urchins to get you know a great education. Um, but yeah, like you go back to London on a leave weekend and so on, and you quickly realize. And the number of times I remember coming back to London on one weekend and being outside my friend's house, yeah, rode my bicycle to his house. Another one of my friends had rode over as well, chilling, cracking jokes, usual stuff. And again, early noughties. Um, so Sonic Crew made these really popular and Audi TT kind of like OG Audi TT rides like around the corner and pulls up a junction right by his house. The three of us kind of like, not being raucous, but just a thing we used to do, we kind of like give him a quiet round of applause and literally say, it's a nice whip, you know, like man's got a nice car to be fair. Yeah. Just there, like, yeah, go, on, go, on, go you kind of thing, positive. My, this guy reverses his car violently back to where we are, rolls down the window. Pulls a gun out of his glove box, pulls it on us, and goes, why are you little N-words watching my whip? So we sit there like, so, what, let me speak for myself. I sit there like, um, what? The friend whose house we're outside of gets territorial, and he's like, what's your problem? I looked at him like, pardon? Like, you need to take a bit of base out of your voice, my guy. That guy's got a gun, and you're like, what's your... I know we're outside your house, and you're getting a little bit territorial, but... One guy is armed and we are not armed. We have bicycles, he has a gun and a car. So can we like, just maybe bring it back a bit? Bring it
0: down a few octaves,
1: yeah. 100%, that's a lot of bass in your voice for someone who doesn't have a gun. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you don't have a gun, yeah? Cool. <laughs> and the guy was sort of like, what? And then he, and then he did that, uh, I mean, what, what's, what's the problem? Yes, what's the problem? Better, less direct. What's your problem? Mm-hmm, too aggressive. What's the problem? Probably still too much, but definitely a step in the right direction, thank you. And then he tries to, to try to the guy in the car tries to turn it into this weird lesson where it's like, um, you know, this is why the N like you were getting shot, watching different mad's whip, watching their girl, like you got to keep your eyes to yourself, yeah. But you guys have got heart, so I'll allow you. And then like drives off, and I kind of stand there like, you know what? Like this London place is a bit mad, you know. Like that window, that is still an extreme situation. But you become so aware of mm. being on the top deck of a bus making too much eye contact with someone before like what are you looking at before we you know we're having a fight, getting yeah. happy slapped <laughs> because it's the noise. So getting slapped on camera and people sharing the the video on like between their phones, um, mm-hmm. stepping on someone's trailers accidentally and potentially losing your life over that when you step on someone's new white high like, TF. you're like, yeah. you know what? It's none of the a war zone awash wash with like hyper-masculinity that I can't even match. Like for me, I'm like, oh I dabble. Oh I have a little stuff at school every now and again when someone says you're but well, these are bad breed kids who are like, just ready to like, to go to prison, to kill over very, very small things. <laughs> That's not me. I'm not a bad boy. Like I'm just, I don't, I will back my corner. If you, yeah. you're a, what, have a little scuff, you can have a knife or a gun, wherever you want, you can have, like I'm not covered the bias for a Nokia 5110 or anything. Yeah. So those kind of situations, you realize quickly going back to school, the lack of chaos in the school compared to the streets of London at the time, especially, and even in the household, like, you know, living in the house that I did with a stressed out mum and, two, you know, two kids, 10 and eight years younger than me, and, you know, all of the stuff going on that I've mentioned, it's a bit chaotic. Like, people have a lot of trauma and have a lot of yeah. stuff going on. Things, people just fly off the handle of nothing, you know, you can leave a spoon in the sink. Yeah. And your mum will be like, oh, so you left, you want me to die. That's why you left the spoon there, because you want me to, you want to kill me. you like, with an unwashed spoon? Not the preferred choice. So if, any homicide, but okay, go off. Like, no, I was just watching after the day. I was going to watch it later. Like, what, why are we fired about this? <laughs> it's so frustrating. It's so over the top. Right, gotta right. Understand where it comes from, right? Um, but then you guys to boarding school and everything makes sense. All of the rules what you're mm, supposed to do. Mm. And also there are no stressors. There's no hyper-masculinity. You come into the school with that energy and people are like, dude, like, chill out, man. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Because no one needs to perform. You don't
0: need to have The that stakes eating. are way lower, yeah. The stakes are so low. 100%. So, exactly. so, so it's such an adjustment. It's so interesting because as soon as you mentioned that story about the TT, I I'd thought about <laughs> the, so I think I was mugged twice as a teenager. Really? Uh, yeah. So, so the it's first, yeah, I said, it's funny to look back. So I think the first time was, first time was Halloween and I was just out in Muzzle Hill on Crichton Avenue, walking mm-hmm. back on my own, just left my mates. So the geezer comes up to me and he's like, Oh, mm-hmm. give me your phone. And at the time, I had the shittiest phone because my other one broke. So I gave it to him, and he goes, "Nah, nah shit, I share that one." He gave it, back. and then he asked me. Uh, then I like walked past him, and he goes, "Yo, oh, you come back?" And I just like ran home. I sprinted. Yeah. And then yeah, like the second time it happened, I remember it happened right outside school. And again, it it's so nominal when you look back. It's like, okay, great, you got some shitty slim Nokia. Like, well done you, but. I remember the second time like they actually found they actually found the geezer because he had he had been booked earlier up in Notting Hill by the same police officers and so I ended up getting the phone back which was also battered and then he sent me a HMV gift card for £20 from unit are you joking? no they were my two they were my two because we like when we we was at Vaughan so I mean I really resonate with what you're saying because you know Cardinal Vaughan is based in Holland Park but it is Patty Corner to Shepherds Bush and Labber Grove, Notting Hill. And so Vaughan as a school in that area, is very, very different. And so, you know, we're walking around in blazers and ties and just getting picked off left, right and centre, especially when you're coming out of, you know, Latimer Road Station down there. And that's that's right by Grenfell and where all that horrible stuff happened. But, you know, again, football was the the one thing that was kind of the equaliser and, at least on the pitch I I, I wrote this last night and one of my reflections I think what I loved about football so much is that although I was a posh boy from Muzzle Hill called Cornelius I was very much like you which is I was polite in life I wasn't polite on the field and I think that got a lot of respect from a lot of the the other blokes who came from much tougher backgrounds and actually I happened to make a lot of friends with those individuals because of my prowess on the pitch so it's amazing how education and sport, in the right context, can be an amazing equaliser. And maybe 100%. this is a good point to to put on the black nod because I think I think there's some of that when you look back now. You're like, why were we such dickheads to each other? Like there was really there
1: was really no need, was there? One hundred percent. Like honestly, the foolishness, and this is the thing you have to like nothing. Just the foolishness you get up to at that age, like the st- kind of asbo. Adjacent shit you would do. That's just like, why are you doing that? Are you just bored. Like, what are you doing? I like, just like sit. Like, not the worst stuff, but just destructive, foolish stuff. And yeah, like it's unreal, kind of what that experience is like. And I have to caveat it by saying, like, great, like again, part of the nuance of the disadvantage. Like, I grew up in some council estates in West London. That broadly, and again, like I've seen some not great stuff that people from other parts of London mm. luckily haven't seen, but like broadly, if you're like, but when you swap that for living in the equivalent in North, South or East, you're like, nah, but <laughs> what do you mean? Like I, if you're my age, all my friends from boarding school who grew up in North, South or East, at the age of 11 or 12, are being stopped in searched by the police, I've never been stopped in search by the police. They used to come after me, like, you know, you ride your bike on the pavement, they assume you're above the age of 16 because they can't see children. They will have to decide that you're grown. I'm 14, like, let me live. But, you know, can't ride your bike on the pavement, you know, unless you're bloody age, you 16, but like, I'm 14. Why have you, don't you have things to do? Why have you stopped me, a child on a bike? Mm, um, mm, that mm. was my, oh, that's so annoying. If I grew up in like North easy or like West, you know, in North or, you know, East or whatever, if I grew up in like Kensal Rise rather than Hammersmith. Yeah. Like I would have been stopped by the police and so on and so forth. So there's that kind of like interesting, you know, Kind of nuance to the experience. And I would say that maybe in certain parts of like Southport, East London, that energy of like almost like, I don't, there's another group of boys, I don't know them. And it's just this tension. Yeah. It's just tension that, oh, you know, what, have, what are they about? Who are they though? Who do they know? Like, well, what are you about though? Like, we're just slipping our lives, you go to different schools. Like, what's, what's your own? Like, do your thing. Yeah. And we had that energy to a certain extent. I'd say not as much as maybe some other areas. Um, just by virtue of the makeup of the area of London that we lived in, but uh, yeah, like, you know, to talk about the nod, like the black nod, I sent you that video of Akala. Yeah. Do you life. mind if
0: I, do you mind if I play it? Cause I just, I, I would love everyone to hear yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's yeah. play it. Let's play it.
2: You'd see a group of Asian lads. You probably wouldn't even register them as a threat. You'd see a group of white lads. You probably wouldn't even register them as a threat. You'd see another group of young black boys. You'd become tense. Your heart rate goes up. You're like, is it gonna pop off or not? But nobody tells the story to the end. By the time you're 25 or 30, 90% of us, not only have you grown out of it, I'll see this brother here on the road and I'll nod at him like, I'm happy just to see it. Because I'm like, I know we're of a certain age now where not only is no beef gonna pop off, I'm happy for you, black man. I hope you're having a great day. And it actually, actually made my day to see you. And so no one, no, no one talks about the hostility that then turns into the black nod. You know? And the black nod is not just hey racism exists and we've a coherent experience, the black nod between man and them is also sorry we was all such dickheads to each other before fam. And I I am sure you've got two kids now and I really wish well for your kids and I hope that all of that is in the nod. That's why when I see certain men and they don't nod, I'm just like you are a waste man, fam, you did it you didn't even do the nod. Um that is fantastic. <laughs> you can't, like, I can't lose weight
1: with words. Like, you can't, you couldn't say it better. Like, I'm glad you can't be off there. Like, that is, you have to hear it its full glory. Yeah. It's hilarious. Like, even, like, my girlfriend sees it. Even, you know, you go on holidays. You go on holidays these days. You end up in, you know, some nice resort in Cyprus or Greece or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, the world, you know, capitalist, capitalism underpinned by white supremacist patriarchy. Like, that's, that's what we have, right? But overwhelmingly, the, People on this holiday with us are white people, obviously, like just how economically things, you know, systemically, that's where there's more prevalence of wealth. It's just how it goes on um, mass. But at the same time, like two, three black people turn up. And it's amazing, like, because I had, I, I almost needed a Carla to say that because, like, I didn't have the language to make sense of it. Because you do do it. Like, and my girlfriend will see it. She's like, you just not at that like, guy, with it. like, what? You just not at each other. You're like, yeah, like, just, I guess here is the context of it's So nice, crazy, it's a nice place, it? it's a night holiday. The pool's looking lovely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, drinking yeah, yeah, a yeah. Palada, everything nice. Yeah. And it's just a kind of like, you know, acknowledgement of. I see you. I, I see you. That's it. I've with my therapist, my girlfriend's noticed it. It's, it's a big thing. And yeah, like, it's. But it's also very global. It's very global. Like, the number of friends I've had, like, from the US who. I had a friend who. Um, came up, she lives in, on the west coast. She came over to London and we hung out for a bit. And she, she was like, oh, you know, black boys, are not, like black people in London don't really do the nod, do they? I was like, yeah, we do, what, what do you mean? We still haven't addressed what the nod is, the black nod. I was like, they don't really do I see a couple of people giving the nod, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe weren't looking long enough or whatever, like maybe something, that, you know, but like, no, it, it exists. And especially in the spaces where, you know, it probably doesn't happen in carnival. If It doesn't happen a not in your carnival, maybe. Yeah. Uh, although as right as that's become, but like it happens in so her house for sure. <laughs> like oh, hello, <laughs> how's it going? I see, right. you. I see you to be cool.
0: Right, I see you here. Yeah, I love that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So look, Jason, and it's not to like exalt it. It's not to like be yeah. like oh, like wow, how amazing you are. You made it a house. It's just a oh, this space clearly like yeah. We life is going in a direction where we're in spaces where whether it's in the boardroom and certain companies or whatever it is, like systemically, we shouldn't be here, but we're here, we are here. And I see you. And that doesn't make you better or worse than anyone. It's just also means that by like, being in this space, you're probably having to navigate either self-editing to a certain extent, potentially, or resisting self-editing. Or like, nah, this is who I am. And I'm not going to form a version of white middle-classness or upper middle-classness. Very solid handshake, good eye contact and yeah. You know, talking about the golf and the cricket. Blah, 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 blah. Like, no, I'm not doing any of that. Like, this is what you get. This is who I am. And that's exhausting in a system that, you know, you, you have to kind of raise your head above the parapet to do that. And that is exhausting in a way that other people maybe don't need to. So there's just a either you're figuring it out and being what you need to be to get shit done, mm. or you're asserting, probably because you have the privilege to, this is who I am and I'm not going to perform. And this is valid, and you should customize what it means to be here beyond perform this to belong. And either way, it's wrong and it's exhausting. And if we were just in the ends living our lives. We could just chat crap jokes about from video games to bashment music to hip hop to yeah. whatever to top boy, like to football, like all the things that are meant to be for us and not for us, or for everyone. You know, they're all for everyone. But like we would just chat on the level in that situation. But here, you've got a You've got some baggage you've got to deal with, and I just see you, and I, 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 I see you.
0: Yeah. So what what I'd love to talk about is is kind of a couple of different things, um, because the end of your story ends with Oxford, which in many ways is the pinnacle of of British higher ed, or actually just higher ed in general for a lot of Americans that I spend time with. So I do want to get to that, but I also want to talk about the London nod and the England nod, um, and maybe we could kind of dive into that piece I sent you by by Laurie Penny. Called the Long Call yeah. of Britishness, and and I think what she kind of talks about so beautifully is like this tale of two Britons, and you know she gives a you know one picture is white old men and women telling us on BBC News that Brexit will make their line shorter, the GP, uh, the, the Greg <laughs> the Greg sandwich is half eaten, of course, and then there's the other where you 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 like me a couple of Christmases ago take your darling girlfriend from America who adores Downton Abbey to Highclere Castle. And you're shaking hands with uh, Lorne Grantham and, and listening to Ding Dong Merrily on High, sung by the RAF choir. Um, and then there's the tale of two Londons, which is, to me, and my dad always said this because he got up earlier than I did. But because I was going down to Vaughan early, usually yeah. I'd leave at 7, but some days we had football training before I'd leave at like 5, 5.30. And so at 5, between 5 and 6.30 on the tube, you see all the essential workers, cleaners, teachers, nurses, rising to work very quiet, very content, usually foreign. It's the best time to take the tube. And you could go an entire two hours without hearing a single English accent or voice aside from mind the gap towards a closing. But then (laughs) at seven, um, the men and women of the city would be with you, uh, rocking their metros or city AMs, high-tech headphones, miserable fucking faces, racing you down to the train platform, elbowing you in the side, and, and fighting mm. for absolutely every seat and inch of space they could probably get. And you go weeks without seeing a smile. So that was the, the two Londons and the two Britons that at least up until 2013 I had experienced. But having been out now seven years and only coming back for two weeks at Christmas and to go to Lovebox in the summer, uh, I just, I, when I, when I yeah, like essentials, like minimum effective <laughs> dose, you know, because Man United are worth coming back for. There's There's just this element of like, what the hell happened like, i was walking down holland park avenue and this was the best city in the world And now like what so i'm fascinated to get, get your it. take
1: yeah it's 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 a lot it's a lot i think that there is a there's definitely there's two cities there's two countries for sure like the beauty of london is the two cities actually are we are in such a built-up city are side by side or on the opposite sides of the same road. I have to live. And the beauty is living, or the some of the clarity comes from living both. So I now live on the fancy side of the road, and the council estates on the other side. Whereas I grew up at the council estates in Fulham, which is now a very desirable area to live in, where all the Maiden Chelsea cast apparently live. they are like, even I can't reconcile that. I'm like, why do you live in Fulham? Fulham's dead. Like, what are you living in Fulham for? Ugh. It's like, yeah, maybe the Biden teens were like London was just a bit ugly and underdeveloped, but like, ah, like in, you're joking, like Knightsbridge and Kensington around the corner, like it's lovely. Although it's not how I see it, like, I feel like now, I feel like my mum, when she's like, where are you? I'm like, no, shortage or best oh my god, I hope you're wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> like, Why? Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, the shortage. Like, it's so scary, you're like, well, it's just full of like, Queen Mary, QF, Queen Mary students called Poppy and Cressida, yeah. who were like doing MDMA. Like, <laughs> I'm scared for their health, but like, they're not going to do anything to me. <laughs> they're like, this is a really middle class quaint. <laughs> like, this is not what you think it is. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's chill, don't worry. Kind of an like outdated viewpoint something, things, on um, places. Yeah, London is, it's, it's, it's this, it's, it's changed so much. It's changed so much. And it's just been this consolidation of our idea of ourselves. There's so much to it. Technology plays into it. This idea that Britain has of itself, this kind of weird. You know, I'm fairly ambivalent about the idea of having a monarch, but I do think that a lot of your issues, um, especially the boarding school that I went to, is like the patron of the school is the queen. And obviously, like her lineage of some well, Tudors, but whatever, like are responsible for the school existing. But mm. aside from that, like we've got to let that go at some point. It's like 500 years ago. You can't. I can't get credit for that forever. But if you want to have like a magical lady ordained by God at the top of the society, whatever, like fundamentally on balance, I, for what it is, I've with it conceptually, the issue I have is that Britain is such a classist society. And in a way that like, a, like you take the U S and it's all about money, right? It's like, you got money, you're it. That's it. It's all it's all white supremacist patriarchy. Like your blackness is going to be a reason why you might not have access to money or opportunities or brownness or whatever it may be. And like there's still some maybe new money, old money energy, but like what's the old money in America? Like ex- Laborers, like what's what's the industry that created wealth in America that can describe as old money? Like, like that's all there is. So unless you're in the South and you are running in those circles, you kind of avoid that. Whereas in the UK, there is this difference between like born to rule, landed gentry, who are all old Deatonians and all red PP at Oxford or Cambridge and all white in the city before taking on their role as Chancellor the Jacket before eventually becoming prime minister. It's like every single prime minister is ex-Eaton. So it means that Eaton is like a vehicle to which you are going to become, you're going to be in government. But it also means if you're at Eton, that you're likely there because of this legacy component of what Papa went to Eton and Grandpapa and so on and so forth. Like Jacob Rees-Mogg is the embodiment of this, this kind of weird, you know, sort of Victorian specter in modern human form. And, like, it's the issue with the queen is, like, the issue of the monarchy is the idea that it entrenches the concept of it being natural, that the order of things are what they are. This is why every other meaningful, <laughs> like, Western country has abolished this, this type of rule, because it entrenches the idea that, well, some people deserve to have, and some people deserve to not have. We have enough mechanisms for that. We have white supremacy patriarchy. Like women are kind of equal, but not really, it seems to be as far as we've got in the West. Men deserve to have things, particularly white men. Cool. Like, you know, black people, brown people, their labour, they're kept in these places, they have these opportunities, and white people get to be management and asset holders. And that's we need that order, otherwise who's gonna do the low paid jobs that we can be you have to divide the world into exploiters and the exploited, fundamentally. If you want a capitalist structure to, to exist and to thrive. And the issue of having a monarchy is essentially it entrenches that concept. Like, there's, you can't have a society that increasingly gets more and more unequal, with more and more people sleeping on the streets, with more and more people eating at food banks, with less and less social mobility, but have palaces abound and, and castles abound the country, all paid for by taxpayers, by literally, by literally like us, by me. Um, with a magical lady at the top who gets the benefit from that. It doesn't make any sense. Like It entrenches the idea that this is all completely natural. And Britain has so many opportunities for a reckoning that most other serious countries would embrace in some way. I think the difference in some ways between the UK and the US is that, I mean, the US's main religion is money. It's capitalism. And basically, there are such extreme inequalities that there are more extreme relatively responses to it. So New York and its Spider-Man, you know, vigilance, where it's like, you just move mad and New York's just like, nope, we're not on that. Oh, you know, if all these, you know, low-paid workers don't actually pay for a ticket on, on the subway and you know go through the gate when it's open and so on and so forth, we're gonna clamp down on that. And a bunch of people who for whom that's not their life, imagine like middle and upper middle class New Yorkers paying the highest rent ever and all the rest of it, like, nope, we're not on that. We're striking, we're shutting down the subway, and like, all of a sudden the big strike, and it's not made up of just the people affected. It's this wider energy of, no, like, you can't keep squeezing. There's only so far you can push. So the extremes encourage that response, but Britain's in this weird holding pattern where, and if you're conscious, you kind of look at it, and you're like, there's so many opportunities for a reckoning, but like, any one of these things would like, topple a, a, an institution or a way of thinking. But we just kind of move on, like, wow, oh, well, that was just Wednesday, and let's see what happens on Thursday. It's like, why do we have more people dying from COVID 19 than any other country of a similar size? And it's like, we were looking at Italy when this stuff started, like, oh my God, it's apocalyptic, it's so terrible. And how quickly you're like, yeah, it's all right, 40 odd thousand, maybe 60 thousand people died. And are, we're only now wearing masks as mandated by law in like a couple of weeks. And they flirt, you know, letting people in and out of the country. and putting them on quarantine when they did, and then just abolished that, moved on, this herd immunity nonsense at the beginning, it's like, you fumbled the bag so horrendously, like the the um, health secretary, Matt Hancock is like the most woke, he looks like a Foxton's valuer, he looks like an <laughs> estate agent, like, I'm like, who is this child, like, it's most un- why is Marcus Rashford more qualified to make an influence at governmental level than Matt Hancock, health secretary, like, are you not embarrassed? like fumble the bag at every single stage. It's such a scandal. Dominic Cummings, who is getting, you know, the contracts for all of this, you know, search and, um, these, you know, um, these different, you know, platforms of like to track and search the, you know, that aren't happening now, but all of the money is in spent, and all of the people who are connected to this group have benefited scandal, Teflon Don, we move on Brexit scandal. We move on. You're like, honestly, COVID is like, nothing compared to what Brexit is going from an economic perspective, obviously with more than just you know, people's lives and so on. But from an economic point of view, like Brexit is going to eviscerate most people's like, economic standing or a larger portion of people's economic standing in this country. And that's after COVID has finished ravishing, like in its own way. They're like, okay, I'm Grenfell, we just move on. We just move on. Like there's a standing tomb to government incompetence, greed, Death that is allowed because you're black and brown and poor. And every year we do a don't forget Grenfell. I mean, they talk about it on the news. As we move on. There's people haven't really rehoused. We haven't done anything from a policy perspective to 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 reverse this. Mm. The Windrush scandal, like this, is just in, like the last four years. This is before we get it's to like you know yeah. Anfield, you know, or Hillsborough. Sorry, um, you know, to <laughs> you know, even Afghanistan and Iraq and weapons of mass destruction and all the rest of it. The killing of Mark Duggan. Which at the time it's like oh you know all these black and brown people get really angry just having a reason to steal some stuff they're like nah this is an underclass of people systemically kept within an underclass we just killed some guy who didn't who shouldn't have been killed you unlawfully killed somebody you also tried to dress up and pretend that they were this. every image of mark dublin is him like mourning somebody at a funeral that is made to make him look as moody and aggressive as possible yeah. It's actually, and it's him, hold, I think it's him holding like a picture of a loved one who passed. Um, it's a solemn looking picture, but they always crop it. So yeah. So it's holding, me mugging. Yeah, like, exactly. just high. yeah. Yeah. So it just looks like angry black boy and you're like, okay, so these are all. And there's more in between that That you know, the, yeah, the point is probably made at this point, but like these are all chords for like a reckoning. These are all, each one individually as a, whoa, who the fuck are we? What are we trying to be? How do we move forward? Like, how can this happen? How do we rectify this systemically? How do we mm. knock down what's happened and lock down what exists and build something with the purpose, a purpose that is the antithesis of what these um, institutions clearly exist to do and are continuing to do? But there's this entrenched middle class, you know, people who are in fact, there's this entrenchment of the idea of, well, like, my life's all right. So, like, that's just natural order of things, and all that. Those other people should have made better decisions, like me. It's this bootlicker culture mm-hmm. of everything sucks, and we're all struggling, which is kind of kept in place by having a magic lady in the castle. And I have, you know, conversations with people, and it's like, no, why do you want to get rid of the queen? I'm like, we I mean, keep the palaces, you know. I mean, this whole idea, well, Americans won't come in here and look at the palaces; they don't get to meet the queen. They have to be in there or not be there. They're not having a one-on-one with her. Yeah. like <laughs> yeah any one of these places could be in a seri- if this just a serious country you would turn every single one of its palaces to into a center for re-enfranchisement within society for homeless people for addicts for people who don't have skills who, who are unskilled or not unskilled because that's used in a weird way to describe people who are actually essential workers or people who need to upskill in order to come into the labor market if the idea is you need to get a job to make money to exist in our society. Yeah. Then you have to create the mechanism by which people are able to do that. And any one of those palaces could be a center for that. Or just a home for homeless people that does that as well. And as long as it's not, and a magic lady gets to fritter between them all while we all pay for it, there's nothing that can be done to convince me that that is a sensible way to structure your society. And yeah, there's just so much going on in terms of that, or what are kind of it's this collective hallucination that those of us who are enfranchised get to pedal, And it definitely ties into how we're educated. Like we know so little about our country. Like there's so much that I know about Britain and London that through further reading um, I've learned, I know more about um, the Roman empire, about the Tudors and I know more about horny King with his five or six wives than I do about like when, when did Britain become Britain? What was the impact that Britain had on Ireland? How has that, play into um, migration of, you know, many Irish people to the Americas, um, how does that play into... like I, I went to Belfast about a year or so ago, yeah. which is in Northern Ireland, which is in the UK, um, and learned about a war separating um, the society <laughs> essentially between Catholicism and, and Protestants that is longer than the Berlin Wall, which I know all about, everyone knows about the Berlin Wall, longer, still exists. Gates still closed at a particular time to segregate the city in Britain in 2020, and I had to go there and go on a tour to to understand that and to understand the troubles and to understand any of that. At least you don't know any of that. Know more about Martin Luther King Jr. than I do about the New Cross Gate fire or about the fact that Notting Hill Carnival. It's literally a protest movement. It's literally like in keeping with the civil rights movement that happened in the UK. I've heard about the Brixton riots, mm. but there's so much we don't know. And we get to have this idea of ourselves as not involved in all of the awfulness, like we're just in that perfect sweet spot of, oh, all these terrible things happen everywhere else. We're just totally British and you know, it's this weird, almost, I almost whittle it down to, I'll whisper sweet nothings in your ear and invite you in for a cup of tea while I'm stabbing you in your gut. Yeah. It's like, hello, old boy. Would you like a cup of Val Grey? It's like, excuse me, you've stabbed me in my kidney. It's like, oh, well, I was awfully polite about it. Like, but I'm bleeding. Can you take me to hospital? And can you not stab me again? Like, being, right. po- like, that feels like very British energy of, like, oh, no, like, I'm doing a harmful or, you know, thing, but I'd be very, awfully polite about it. So you couldn't possibly... Please, so, I'm fucking... People, yeah. <laughs> ...or being violent. <laughs> yeah. And... We need to do more, like and I, I maybe we've turned a corner, but what worries me and what I found in the context of all of that sprawling rambling is it's so hard to see what's been happening in the US in terms of um, essentially Black Lives Matter becoming mainstream or in white consciousness is what I mean by mainstream. And mm-hmm. it's this weird conflicted feeling of okay. I think in some ways the US is like kind of falling apart in some ways. And that means something can be built in its place, that means you can do something different and better. So there's opportunity that comes with that. And that actually I find in that regard really heartening, but also you sit at it, you, you think about well, at what cost, like how many Trade One Martins, how, like, how, how, many, how much deaths, how, how much energy just to have someone be arrested for taking somebody's life. But literally, we have to have a social media campaign where somebody is yeah. arrested for killing someone if they're black. Um, so that's so traumatizing and exhausting and just numbing. But then I look at the UK component and we've you know, had our black, you know, we've, everyone in a while has been, you know, used this vacuum that COVID has brought to really go go for it. Um, when it comes to Black Lives Matter. Mm. And we've seen, you know, a lot of symbolic stuff, which is heartening. You know, we've seen the statues of slavers being taken down, we've seen all these things. But it's such a collective amnesia-slash hallucination of what Britain is that we're all taught, ed- from an academic point of view, institutionally, we're taught to believe that we're so far away from any. Like you couldn't get on the subway in New York and say slavery was a terrible thing. And have somebody go, no, it wasn't. But you could get on the tube in London and exclaim the British empire, you know, the empire in star Wars, your favorite movie, you know, the bad guys, like the British the empires are bad in every iteration of fiction that is created ever. Yeah. The British empire was a bad thing that, did, that carried out untold evils. Yeah. Um, 50% of the people on the tube in London, not in, Middlesex or <laughs> you know um you know in central London or we'll top well they'll probably start them not oh, if you like, not hate Britain so much why don't you leave and all that kind of stuff there'll be that in indignation and when that's your starting point it's really hard to see how you kind of save the soul of this yeah. nation like you-, you can't have a nation that will applaud you know Um, key workers and have the Prime Minister banging his pots and pans together outside his window. A a literal NHS that saved his life in Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. Mm. And then when it comes to, and then immediately say, yeah, you've got to pay for your parking at your place of work in hospitals and you're not going to get a pay rise and we're not going to invest in the equipment and the things that actually, like, there's there's something very wrong when you're banging pots and pans together but not do things. There's something missing in the soul of the country. And I think you eventually can get it or we, I get it back because it's so entrenched. It's, you know, all this historically it's a country where abroad and here mm. have been the haves and the have-nots. It's just so ongoing now. Yeah. And I don't really think it's reclaiming a soul. I think it's almost infusing a new soul into it. But it can be really disheartening that we're so far away. Because um, if you have to have conversations around is the British Empire a good thing or a bad thing, that's a really, that's a starting point that's like miles behind yeah. yeah. The US I mean, is like, you know, um but it's also so much worse in the US and that makes you so much, you know, you can't you have to balance oh there's hope in the US. Yeah. But there's such a cost and so traumatic. Yeah. And there's not as uh, Not you should quali- I don't know how you quantify these comparisons, but like it is so much like Britain and America is very similar in a lot of ways. Mm. Anything that America has, it's always just much worse than Britain. But it's, Britain is always next. It's like Who's had the worst response to COVID? Who's had the most deaths? America. Guess yeah. who's second? Basically Britain. Who's got like the worst state funded like education system in the world? In the West? America. Who's next? Britain.
0: Mm.
1: Whose mm. healthcare mm. system mm. is by underbunded or for America. Next? Britain. Infant mm. mortality? America. Then Britain. Mm. Like poverty. America. Then Britain. Prison population. America. Then Britain. Like it's <laughs> literally <laughs> like, oh right. bars. You know these two these two nations, but America knows it, and it's like waking up and something could happen. And Britain's still like, nope, this is fine. Britain is the meme of like the little dog or whatever it is in the kitchen on fire. But oh this is cool. This is great. Yeah, it's fine. Well, that's what's, what's so funny,
0: about. right? Is like in and Laurie's piece does such a great job of it. So had to read this to you. Yep. So one twenty sixteen study, forty three percent of the British public think that the empire was a good thing, right? And that has everything to do with how Michael Gove thinks it should be taught, which I think is fascinating in its own Mm. right. And then think about, she said last year, it was the British entertainment industry that kept the country out of recession. Um, And although that grew, I think 50% year over year, uh, actually the services sector grew grew six. And so there is this real tension I'm feeling right now which is like all my american mates because they watch great british bake-off and a new series of <laughs> the crown has come out and oh geez jk yeah. Rowling's gonna you know do a new harry potter series it's just like oh this wonderful place that you have
1: but it, it's a fictitious reality it's it's yeah it's a i like i live the, the tower bridge you know the um spider-man far from home final fight scene bridge right like we have a lot of people, anyone, Americans who maybe haven't been to London, but the bridge that opens up, right? The big mechanical one that opens up and that shits through it and looks like a castle. And, you know, I'm very lucky where the Tower of London again, where a big fight scene in Spider-Man. Basically, a lot of my experiences weave around Marvel films. Um, Yeah, another place where (laughs) another place where uh, Spider-Man happens. But yeah, all of these old, yeah, the the Tower of London's it's like something like a thousand plus years old or something and then you've got the shard in the background behind it that's like 10 years old it's a bit mental but like sometimes I do this walk along the river over Tower Bridge past Blackfriars Bridge up to Black, um, Blackfriars Bridge Bridge, past um, City Hall and, and past St. Paul's Cathedral on the way back and you know all of these grand historic places right mm. and there is like a farcical element to Britain like it's a bit mental to walk through it all and be a bit like this place is a bit Mental, isn't it? Like, it's a bit, it's like this idea of what Britain is with, like, you know, the Queen, the the royal family's insignia on the tower, on Tower Bridge, and, you know, this image of this black boy looking at wonder, looking wondrously in this poster at the crown jewels at the Tower of London. I'm like, that's all stolen stuff from black and brown people. Like, all those jewels are just stolen from your ancestors. And now it's in a room in this old castle we have to pay to go into and go, you know, this is all great. This is great to have all this this monument to our plundering and death and rape and pillage. This is good. This is a healthy way for a society to work. But this man in a red Game of Thrones outfit basically <laughs> proclaims how amazing this is, and you're like, it's hard to. It's a real dissonance. It's, it's it's between the two, the reality and the story. And you kind of walk around and you can't help but see the story, the branding, the you know. I'm sure Downton is a great show, right? Like I've never got into it, but well, I'm sure it's a great show. But I look at it and I'm like, what oh, fascination with these kinds of shows? And this looks like it's some 19th century Victorian stuff, right? And the story we get is, oh, look at the drama in this quaint little castle that are part of England. Oh, mm. you look know, people underneath in the kitchens and then the wealthy people and, oh no, things are going on. I'm like, oh, all these people, all their like cousins and brothers and barbers are like, plundering the rest of the planet are killing people, have people in concentration camps, are destabilizing places, are stealing resources. Like, this is arch-empire. This is like, the story of this time is the scandal of what's happening everywhere else. But the story we get is this quaint drama, tea and biscuits in in downtown. I'm like, where's the real shit? This is, I'm okay for this to exist, but it should be like one-tenth of like, the real content, the media that's out there. Like, do you know what I mean? Um, Mm. And yeah, it's hard to, to marry the two. Sometimes literally walking through London, you have both in your head, you're like, oh, a city that was built with the wealth accumulated from industries, including the slave trade and colonization. I like literally, Lloyds of London built, like the insurance industry built by insuring slave ships in in, the, in um, when the slave trade was at its height, you're like, it's hard to be a black guy walking around with this mm. and get to benefit from it, casually walk around and go into my nice apartment and be like, ah, oh, like that's, and that's the, I think, while wrap like with this whole tangent is that, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me about my like, Black Lives Matter and what's the right thing to do. And I'm always like, give yourself like a year because like I'm doing this podcast with you, Cornelius, on my MacBook Pro, um, with a, cobble battery in it that was mined for by a little Congolese boy, right? And you're like, I'm not Congolese, but you know, the world racializes me as black. I have a shared experience with other black people that, mm. you know, I'm a Pan Africanist. Like, there is a consciousness and probably something, <laughs> you know, spiritual and DNA based that means there is a connection that <laughs> means to that nod when I'm in Brazil or Chicago or London. Um, but at the same time, there is there is this kind of challenged with oh, the reason I can afford a MacBook Pro or an iPhone is because this child will lose, you know, many of whom you know have lung issues, lose their hands, or the rest of it, digging around plus cobble is a cheap resource that means that my MacBook Pro costs $2,000. But if we exported British people out to the cobble mine in the Congo and paid them the kind of wages that we were paying in the UK or in the US, or whatever it might be then my MacBook Pro suddenly goes from being $2,000 to $20,000. And then Apple, a company with all of the reserves of wealth tantamount to like a nation's GDP or more, basically goes from the richest company ever to completely economically unviable on that change alone. And living with that, living with I'm from a part of the world, that means that I am where we are exploited. I've moved to a part of the world that is an exploiter-in-chief. And within that part of the world, there were still exploiters and exploited. There were poor, you know, there's poor underclass people in every country, like America or Britain, who are exploited as labor and so on, mm-hmm. and then there's exploiters. So I'm kind of not in the exploited side of that on a micro level in the UK or the US, but I have to live with the fact that systemically, white supremacist patriarchy as a means of underpinning capitalism. It means that the only reason I have some of the things that I have It's because some poor black boy or child in in the Congo is having to do that kind of work. It's so interwoven within all of our experiences. Like you need to embrace the imagination required to realize actually all the things that you're told are completely fine and natural really aren't. But learn to live with it. But be the change that you want to see. It's kind of a I can't. I we have not changed the system today. And I need my MacBook Pro to do work and exist within that system and be in the game. Like if I want to be any kind of change, I need to do something. Yeah. But it also means I have to be complicit in this. And that's hard to deal with, and that should be hard for anyone to deal with. Like the fact that if you're a white person, if you're a brown person, that Believe boy should still be like, oh, what the hell? You know, South Asian people in factories for Apple and manufacturers elsewhere, people should be like, oh my God, what the fuck? Or Southeast Asian people, whatever it may be. like. It's not specific to well, a black person is a Cognitive kid or, you know, I'm Latinx and this is, you know, a Latinx person mm. in this job in, you know, this migrant in, in this low paid job um in the US. Like the fact and narratives it's just so boring. it's not right, but it's systemic. And once you can learn to hold that, it's like sit with it for like a year. Sit with it with sit with your complicity within the system. Because everyone else has to, you know, black people as well. And after like a year of examining your behavior, things you've said, things you've done, and I include myself in that, then come back and like, if you're still in a, you know what, yeah, Black Lives Matter, let's go, then let's start, let's do some real work. And if you're like, you know what, it's long, I don't have the imagination to be able to carry this. I can't hold this truth and not, because some people can't hold it, Like that's understandable. It can be a means of falling into depression and so on, but some people have to hold it. And even a year's time, you're like, I, I'm a bit sadder. <laughs> but I'm ready to do the work. All right, let's begin. Yeah, because otherwise it's like two, three weeks, and then it's uh, you know what? I'm so fatigued by this energy. Like, oh, I wish I could just you know, I mess with it. I wish I could just. Oh, I, I don't want to do that anymore. But here I am. So yeah. it's it is a lot, and it's very systemic, and we're all complicit. But I think startup energy, like being okay with that, and beginning to do the learning, and be the change that you want to be, the change that you want to see is okay it's mm. okay like it's not about being right it's all not right it's all very unnatural we need to iterate something different and better than mm. what we what we've basically inherited mm. and had to embrace to an extent to survive we just need to we need to knock it down and build something new um, but if you're not in the game you can't do that yeah so holding the truth but staying in the game yeah. and also still being kind to yourself and living with joy it's, it's, it's the way forward.
0: Yeah. And I know we'll talk more about this next month, Jason, at the Junto, but I guess just to wrap, you've been very generous with your time. I wanted to ask three questions in a row, and you can just give a couple sentence answers. You can have another Beatle soliloquy. To you, what does it mean to be a London boy? What does it mean to be a black London boy? And then what does it mean to be a black unicorn? And are they the same thing or different? And I'll,
1: I'll leave you there. That's a good one. I oh, no, I'm not. I think it's hard. For me, the first two are linked. The first two are linked. And I say that because as a London boy and as a black London boy, my experience by virtue of my age and just the nuances of my experience growing up in London is very it's very I don't want to say multicultural because I don't really believe that's the right word, but like multi background, multi Yeah, like it's a multi it's a melting pot. For me, the estates I grew up in, the schools I went to, there were Nigerian boys, there were Ghanaian boys, there were Ugandan kids, and kids not because primary school was a Co-ed, so Nigerian kids, um, Ghanaian kids, Ugandan kids, Irish kids, Northern Irish and Republic, um, Scottish kids, Jamaican kids, like Bajan kids, Dominican kids, Filipino kids, Indian kids, Black- Bangladeshi, Pakistani, of heritage, like all over the world. And there was something, there was like this, and of course, and of course, you know, good old English, <laughs> a few of them about, but um, there was this like, shared experience where like that's how I see London and I and that's how my experience that's how I got this that's very definitive in my experience and there is a dissonance between the London I grew up in and the London I see by virtue of I guess social mobility to a certain extent. I don't see that. Even looking back like I don't Know if the schools I went to look the way they did when I went, um, because they were probably just appealing enough that there's some consolidation there, and you know more prevalence of people that are more engaged or are more enfranchised who are able to commit to the opportunities that those places provide have gone for them. Um, but I, there's a resonance there, and the other side of that is that I, re- I that feeling of being a, a London boy and that. Blackness for sure, but also just that melting pot of what was so similar. Even like every migrant kid, including Irish kids, it's like we just think similarly. Like our parents say the same thing. Like there's nuance in like, what we eat and languages we speak and have, you know, dance and music and all the rest of it. But the, like all of us are like, yeah, you've got to work twice and start to get up this far. Like you are not seen as like, you've got to put the work in. There is this, there's this. What's the word I want to use? Like unity. There's this kind of you know togetherness and shared experience that is resonant across the board. Um, and I resonate with that much more than I do with people are, like, oh, you're British, and I'm like, oh, yeah, technically, I like my passport, but i have a Burgundy currently, Burgundy passport. It um, still says European Union on it, and um, <laughs> yeah, hold I'm on British, to that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm hanging on to that as long as I can, but like. The identity components, oh, you're English, you're like, oh, I am not really English. Because like, oh, you're British, and no, I am not really British. Like, I'm a Londoner. Like, that's, yeah, and you could add the West London component to that, but like, I'm a Londoner. Like, I relate more to Londoners overall than I do anyone else from these islands, from these isles. Like, that's that experience. If you're a certain age where there's that is particular resonance. Then you see London the way I see it. We're being like, rah, like, you know, everything's a bit whitewashed out, you know. I'm like, well, I mean see that. where's the real McCoy? Where's Goodness Gracious Me? Where's Little Miss Joplin? Where's you know, we ever see black and brown people on mainstream TV? It's just made in Chelsea and Tally. That's all I see in Love Island. Like they know a couple of brown people on Love Island, you know, but what, you wouldn't think we existed if <laughs> you watched the BBC and ITV, It's just quickly and you know, it's it's really bizarre. So um, there's that I think, which is like those two are aligned for me, and yeah, it means just understand, like having a real understanding of each other, um, and it probably plays into what it means to be a black unicorn for me. I've always said it's the journey from you know being the black sheep that you always were. And evolving into the black unicorn you could always be. It's that journey between being who you were told you're supposed to be and being uncomfortable with it and being inquisitive and you know, asking questions like, right, like why why does that happen then? Or you know, why why do why do girls have to wear blue? Why do boys have to wear blue? Why do these twins, one of us playing, you know, with an ex mentor and the other one has to be in the kitchen doing the dishes cause she's gonna be someone's wife and you know, one day it's like well, well, she doesn't want it to be, but what, what's going on? Why haven't you set these rules? What's, you know, from an early day, early thoughts to be like, that doesn't really make sense. Um, and embracing that inquisitiveness and that growth mentality and stepping into your glory of becoming Black Unicorn, it's that journey from being who you were told you are supposed to be to becoming who you really are. And I think that shared experience as a Londoner, if that partic- you know, as a Londoner in that way, as a Black Londoner, can play into that It's something that all of us can embrace. All of us have had that, this is a bit mad. Why why has that happened? Why is that guy? Why has that man taken my, not my beat down Nokia? And then now I've got H&B, like, why has he done that? What's going on? Um, You know, there's always that question mark. And it's a journey to, you know, almost embracing that divinity that you were born with. Like you were born divine and bound with knowledge. And then you were indoctrinated into seeing the world in a particular way, and being told it was natural that it is this way. Mm. And all of us, on some level, have like a little itch of mm, "I'm not so sure, actually." And some of us have had to have embraced that more, and have to because of the way we organize the world. Some of us, some of us have embraced that even earlier. But essentially, it's the journey to okay, cool. Like I'm an ever-growing, you know, person who or being that is, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the things. And I'm always on a journey to being prepared to be challenged, being prepared to adopt a growth mentality. So I'm to chuckle myself, but oh, this is the way things are. These are the things you're supposed to do. Um, and almost finding my way back home, finding my way back to that divine soul that came into this realm, knowing all, and then kind of unlearning what that soul was taught by being indoctrinated by the society and just embracing that and that's where there's nothing but possibility
0: that's a fantastic note to end on mate. well look i i know this might be our last conversation live at least and uh sure. i can't wait to dive deeper on this with a I think an incredible group of people in the junto next month but jason i guess thank you so much um so fantastic actually to to work through i think through you some of my past and start to make sense of you know my own identity as a as a west london boy who's is now living stateside as my instagram bio says um but as i always end these mate if, if people have resonated or you know you, you've given them the aha moment today and some of the stuff that you've said and i have no doubt this will be the case uh, where can people find you sir
1: ah um on Instagram, I am Jason Touré, Um So just J-A-S-O-N-T-O-U-R-A-Y. On Twitter, I am at Jason Tauray, B-U, when that says B-U, because um, some other fucker has got. <laughs> <laughs> it's Yaya Tauray's little brother, that's who it Yaya, is. Yaya and Kola have conspired against me. Um, yeah, someone cool really looking. inactive has it. It's a bit annoying, but there you go um and my company uh black unicorn our instagram is Slack unicorn b-l-a-c-k-u-n-i-c-o-r-n on twitter we are at hey black unicorn um a very lovely person has that has that at on twitter at black unicorn sadly for us but they're really cool and they're doing cool stuff as well so check them out too maybe you'll like what they've got um but yeah, yeah you can you can find me on those channels all
0: right jason well next time we gotta go deeper on black unicorn deeper on culture uh, there's so much to discuss with you mate but I'm really happy we started here, this feels more close to home and, and think something that's very close to both of you and I's heart
1: 100% I feel the same way and um, yeah I love what i with the Jinto and you know everything you're doing I'm um, yeah very you're just yeah I'm, I'm very grateful that I've been in touch with you, I, you're doing amazing things, I'm very proud for you and um, yeah, real pleasure to be on man, thank you for having me.
0: Cheers mate